Um, <clears throat> such a great lesson for us. Let me um, warn you, so sometimes when you're teaching through a passage, um, or when I'm teaching through a passage, sometimes it's, there's certain things that are taught clearly in the passage, like this is the lesson of the passage, this is the message of the passage. Whoever the original author was, this was the main point they wanted to make. And that's proper interpretation. That's how you're supposed to do it. Also, when you're preaching, sometimes, since I'm the one preaching and doing the research, and I look through it, and I will read a passage, and it'll trigger a lesson that it triggers in me. It, it may not necessarily be the lesson that the author intended. Maybe they didn't have this in, your, in their mind. Some of that has to do with, I, I hope and pray, with the leadership of the Spirit to, in, to um, illuminate the Word that He has inspired. Um, and there's a couple of those today. Paul will tell you, he and I have taught through this little section of Scripture dozens and dozens and dozens of times, because you, when you teach young men regularly, one of the things you're going to be teaching about is these three guys in this situation. And so it just demands it. And so there's so many lessons on my heart that come from this, and I'll, I'll try not to drag them out too much, but um, man, there's just this passage is so rich, and it's such a powerful example to us of faith. Um, and the power of faith, and the devotion and steadfastness of faith. And so we pick up in Daniel chapter 3 with these three men speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, who has just told them, hey, you know what, you probably made a huge mistake, you meant to bow, you forgot, you missed it, oh, you didn't hear the lyre, the trigon, the bagpipe, the... Okay, good, listen, let's, let's make this really clear. You're supposed to be bowing now, so ready go. And before they can even play, the guys go, listen, you don't need to do that. Um, and here's where we pick up. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is um, uh, in, in post-Civil War poetry, the premise that is commonly taught is, is the one that you've seen, especially if you've ever seen like Dead Poets Society or something like that. The, the, the premise is the underlying message of seizing the day. Carpe diem. That's the, that's the message that we see. It's a very appropriate Christian message, or at least there is an appropriate Christian expression of that message. The version that's being taught in post-Civil War poetry is usually not appropriate for Christians, but that there is a concept there that we're supposed to be living this abundant life, that Christ is giving us this abundant life, that we're supposed to be redeeming the time, making the most out of the days because they're evil. These are ideas. And I believe, and I talked to a graduation last night, I think it's last night, um, is, is this idea that for us as Christians, as Christ followers, maybe just as humans, identity, truly abundant life comes from living the life we were intended to live. That, that to live as God intended, as God made us, the life He intends for us, that is the full and complete and abundant life. Um, Christianity is the ultimate countercultural movement. Um, you, know, you know that you've totally succeeded as a countercultural movement when you later become the thing that countercultural movements push against. Because you have so dominated the culture from nothing, from one little seed to a giant tree, as Jesus predicted the kingdom of heaven would be, 
like a tiny little thing that grew to encompass the whole world, and it certainly has. Um, I don't know if it's still true, but until recently, at least, one in every three human beings claimed to follow Christ. One out of every three human beings. Now, okay, but they claim it, right? So this is, it is the ultimate countercultural movement. It has withstood every culture. It has withstood every attempt to break it down. As Billy Graham once said, God's Word is the anvil around which the hammers lay broken. Um, and we see, by the way, in the book of Daniel, we're going to see the first, one of our first little fun hints of that today. Over and over, the, the book of Daniel has come under attack really in a special way from the secular world. And the problem is it continues to stand and the hammers keep laying around it broken. Um, uh, I, I think it, Paul and I was you know, talking about how when we study secular authors about some of these historical events, I don't remember if that was you and I talking about that. Somebody this week, maybe it was Mark. But the um, um, when we read secular authors, and of course they just they just dismiss out of hand things. They just say it like, well, none of that happened. You're like, none of this story in the Daniel, none of that happened. And you go like, I, you really need to defend that. You can't just say that because there's so good evidence that it did happen exactly the way Daniel says. And little hints we'll get to, but it's the ultimate. We are always in a state. So here's what's funny for us as Christians. Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is countercultural even to cultural Christianity. It's one of the things that creates problems for us. Cultural Christianity is, a, is just a nightmare. It's so many Christians live out what it means to be Christian, and to them that just means that you know, they attend church, or maybe they watch it live, or they, it, it really has no impact on their life constantly. And certainly there's nothing extreme or revolutionary about their lives. They don't do anything or risk anything or test anything or whatever outside of the box. They just happen to also be Christians in addition to everything else they have. And that, that, that flies in the face of the biblical model. I've, I've said before, I think if, you're, if your Christian life is boring, then you're doing it wrong. Um, there's there's, there's a, a way to be living this out, to be filled with life and purpose and, and all of that. We, even as humans, so just think of this, as Christians, isn't it funny how the role of the gospel is even to be countercultural to our own individual personal culture. Our little traditions and ways of doing things, that Christianity is constantly revolting against us, against ourselves, even as Christians. It's like we're constantly being remade by the Spirit and remade by the gospel as we go, this is a stand I'm going to take and this is the way it's going to be, and then we realize days, weeks, months, years later, wow, that was awful. Like I was... I was totally wrong. I was, I was somewhere between immoral and just foolish. And, and the, the gospel is constantly even countering our culture. So it's, there's a sense in which the three Hebrews are constantly at war in the Nebuchadnezzar in us too. And the gospel and the pride of the Nebuchadnezzar in each of us is constantly under the attack of the humbling power of Almighty God. And the three Hebrew, three, three Hebrew men in us are constantly being rescued by God from this culture that seeks to tear them down and destroy them. It's fascinating how this really lives out in our lives. Um, the culture that we are counter to is the culture and values of the world. That's the other kingdom presented in the Bible, ironically often represented by Babylon. Different national, ethnical, culturals may have different opinions on what kinds of personal prosperity matters, which important people's approval matters, which temporal things we should be investing our lives in, and what about humans are the best things to build our lives upon. But following God means that personal prosperity is sacrificed to Him. Only His approval is the one that's necessary. His kingdom is the only sure foundation. All the rest of those things, wealth, popularity, approval, investment, 
all the things that our culture worships, are enslaved to following Him. In fact, they're like filthy rags compared to knowing Him. That is the ultimate encounter cultural thinking. Grades, friends, experiences, they all burn up in the furnace. And, and they're all going to burn up in the furnace to a certain degree. It's our job to face that furnace, though, sometimes. It's our job to face whatever it is that the world does bring at us because there is a price to being countercultural. And by the way, that's, Christians have known that all along. That's been known from the very beginning. So here's a funny version of being countercultural. How about this for a funny version? And we're facing this today. A funny version of being countercultural is that as countercultural people, part of our kingdom culture is to be respectful, tactful, deferential, and appropriate to those in authority. How odd for a countercultural movement to honor worldly authority. But it's because our culture, our kingdom, tells us to do so. Isn't that wild? It's a wild thought. And we see that with these three men. They're going toe-to-toe with a guy who's going to have them killed or thinks he's going to have them killed. And what is their response? Is to continue to be deferential and polite and tactful and appropriate. They respect the chair. They respect the title. Um, I was very much so raised, for example, that, that I should show respect for, to, the t- to certain titles. I respect whoever the President of the United States is as the President. I may not respect them as the person, I may not have much honor for them as a person, but I should respect the chair. There's a respect for the emperor, as the Bible tells us, to respect the emperor. Even if the emperor is Nero, there's a certain deference we should have to even a madman in a position of power, because God calls us to. And these things, these things, we should, we even have to, part of why we have to respect authorities is because God tells us he's the one who ultimately places authorities in place. So now we're, now we're respecting the anointing even, which is a crazy concept that when we see crazy people, evil people in positions of power to realize that God was even involved in that for some reason. And they're not counter. So as, as, a, as a democratic republic, we like to think of ourselves as choosing leaders, and in a sense we are. We as a church got to experience what I consider one of the best examples ever of people choosing something that God has chosen. Um, we, we chose, some of you, probably most of you know how we got the name South Spring. As we became a new church, and we were planted by First Baptist Church in incredible amount of generosity. As First Baptist just planted us, all this property became the, in, the, the property of South Spring in an instant, which is wild that any church, that anybody would do that under any condition. The level of generosity is crazy there. But it, it, and, and, and by the way, it's countercultural. It, it has been a witness in the community that they did that. Um, and then, and then, so we're trying to choose a name, and, and there's this, all this, I mean, we tell, I could tell you, we, we chased down with the um, with the state, all these different names, and people threw out so many names. We got dozens and dozens of names um, uh, recommended or whatever. And so we ended up with only two feasible names that the state would let us choose between in the end, and that was South Spring and Bridge Baptist Church. So South Spring Baptist Church and Bridge Baptist Church. Bridge Baptist Church would have required us to build a bridge across the lake just so we would actually have a bridge here. We do have a spring. It's back in the woods back there. Um, but and so the vote was South Spring. They're like, well, we voted South Spring. It, it, that's what won. Months later, meeting with, it was actually, I was talking to Kevin Carswell, and he told me the story that he had met with a guy from downtown, an old guy from downtown, who said, would y'all name that church again? Oh, South Spring. Oh, that makes sense. And Kevin's like, why does that, why, why does that make sense? <laughs> what? Why does that make sense? Any, any of you ever been downtown, been on the square downtown? Okay, so, so, you know, 69 hits the square. If you turn right, 
Is that the correct direction? I think you can turn right there. So what's the name of that? What's the next street you hit, the next north-south street? Anybody know? That's Spring Street. It's called Spring Street because there was a spring at the south end of the square, down where the foundry is now, by the way, which, by the way, was a foundry. Uh, Bethel named that the foundry before they knew that was a foundry, which is another one of these examples. Um, and, and so that's where the spring was, the south spring, south of downtown. That's where First Baptist Church in the early 1900s, late 1800s, baptized people because there was not a baptismal in the church. They didn't have a church. They met in the courthouse or in the Methodist church. The Methodist church didn't have a baptismal, and the courthouse didn't have a baptismal. So for the first decades of the existence of First Baptist Church, South Spring is where people were baptized. So who chose that name? Well, we did. We voted on that name. But I have a funny feeling we didn't choose that name. It just doesn't feel like that. So there's a strong sense of this is the same thing. Did we, did we vote in the president? Yes. Did God choose the president? Well, yes. And, and that's how this works. And by the way, if it's a president you like, yes. If it's a president you don't like, yes. That's how this works. And so we get to see this engagement as these guys, re- they, they show respect and deference. And we're going to see Daniel do this. We're going to see these guys do this all the way through. Following Yahweh is a religion of principle. We are determined to do the right thing. We choose purity in sex and honesty in relationships and integrity in dealings. <coughs> in doing so, we may pay a price. We may lose businesses, monies, relationships, experiences, or our lives. So what is their role here? There's a little bit of a funny counterfactual. Um, counterfactual is what would happen if something hadn't happened that did happen. What would have happened if these three guys had bowed? And we, we don't know. But they didn't bow. And what they do in their obedience... It gives an opportunity for the people here, including Nebuchadnezzar, to watch God work in a really amazing way, to watch God show off. God's actually going to show off here. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So one, I want to make sure you have the correct picture. Let's let's show what a, a Babylonian furnace looks like. This is an actual, apparently, Babylonian furnace. And so now all of a sudden it'll come together for you. So they create this huge heat in it, and then you walk up onto the top. The hilltop takes you to the top of it, and the top of it is where they would dump things that needed to be burned. Things would go down in the top, and the bottom would be a massive furnace, a massive heat, and then they would drop stuff down in it, and that would burn. That's how that actually worked. So that'll create the correct picture for you as we look through this. He's so angry, Nebuchadnezzar is so angry here that he's going to do this. And, and again, this is a triggering thought, and Paul and I talked about this, and John and I did on the podcast just for a second. This, this reminds us, just for a second, let's take one second and remind us of the ungodliness that is so often connected to our anger, especially our masculine anger, men. It's too powerful to play with. We're about to see people die because of Nebuchadnezzar's childish masculine anger. His ego has been offended, and so now he's going to express his rage in physical fire. This is, this is a, the, the idea of a shotgun shell versus a rifle round. Anger is not evil, but explosive anger, anger that just blows out and hits whatever it hits, that just lashes out because of personal offense, is ungodly and sinful. Yes, there is appropriate time for, for us, especially as men, to be angry. There are injustices that should make us, any of us as Christians, angry. Um, there are things that are going to create an emotion of anger in us. It's so fascinating, though, that the consistent teaching to fathers 
in the New Testament is about not inspiring anger, about not being angry, about controlling the steam, the heat in ourselves. It's fascinating that the Bible equates anger and heat over and over again. Even the Greek word means that. Sometimes the thresholds can change quickly for us, but it's hard for our wives and children for those thresholds to go back. The natural temptation, I'll tell you as a therapist, is that is that whatever the worst expression of a man's anger has ever been, his, his wife and his children have to always assume every single time he is angry, it's going to go to that place again. And so they have to prepare their hearts for that. He may go, I've not, I've not done that again. I've not thrown anything in years. Yeah, but you might, because you've done it before. And that's always in there. That's why it's so important that as men, our anger, our power is deferred, is submitted to Christ. We have to be humbled before Him. Powerful things can be scary. Masculine anger is scary. And here we have, not only is He, is he He's actually going to make a, a powerful religious expression, even Babylonians like the number seven, like the Hebrews do. There are seven planets and seven main gods represented by those planets, according to them. Language indicates they were having hating it seven times more than anyone had ever seen. It's not a literal like, okay, it's 100 degrees, now we're going to go to 700 degrees. It's not like that. It was seven times. It's like, oh yeah? Bigger, badder, and better by many times than any of us have ever seen. Flames shooting out of this furnace. The, the, the walls, the bricks of the walls glowing in heat. Verse 20, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. That now makes sense. Up onto the top. And to throw them into the hole, down into the giant fire below. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you can imagine that. That now makes sense as these men are taking these bound, these three bound men up onto the top of that furnace. The heat coming up from the inside of the furnace, even through the bricks, was such that it killed the men who climbed out on top of the furnace to drop them in. They fall dead, and the three are dropped down into the hole. They didn't get to prepare. It was sudden. They're wearing just what they're wearing. There's no opportunity to say goodbye to anybody. They're grabbed up with the clothes they're wearing. They're thrown in. This is kind of a fun little note, by the way. This is strangely specific, isn't it? Don't you think it's funny, the strange specificity of the clothing that they're wearing? Um, I don't know if Daniel was trying to make some special point, but it has served us brilliantly. Herodotus, who, where we get almost all of our information from the Babylonians, Herodotus was a historian from about 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what Herodotus wrote about the clothing of the people of Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. This was the manner of dress which they used, namely a linen tunic that reached to the feet, and over this, another tunic of wool, and then a white mantle thrown around that, while they have shoes of a native fashion, rather like the, whatever that word is, slippers, and they wear their hair long and bind their heads around with fillets. Fillets is a type of a hat. Isn't it interesting that the exact way Daniel described the clothing of the three men thrown into the furnace turns out to be incredibly accurate description of the way Babylonians dressed. Like, pretty much identical. I mean, just tuck that away somewhere. That seems interesting to me. The kind of thing that you can't just say, well, Daniel wasn't written during the time of the Babylonians. Wow, he, he got super lucky then at guessing 
at the clothing of the Babylonians. That's really amazing coincidence. That would like that would be then then that becomes the miracle, right? Anyway, verse twenty three. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So, we know that throughout history, Christians and Jewish people have faced these type of tribulation and have died. So again, we don't want to walk away going, look, God always rescues us from the consequences of being countercultural. That would not be accurate. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. <coughs> I, I got to tell you, a lot of commentaries are confused about this, and they want to explain why Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in haste and says this. I've, I don't understand that. This seems absolutely abundantly clear to me. He just had three men dropped into a fire so hot that the men who dropped them in died. So he has to assume they're going to be pretty much, you're going to get one little, ah, and then they're going to be ash, right? I mean, you might get a noise from them. You might not even get that. Like, he's looking up and going like, and, you know what, if I'd really thought through this, we'd have made the fire cooler, not hotter, because I just killed them really quickly. That, didn't, that was not a good idea. Like, instead, he looks in the fire like, yeah, they're going to be, sorry, guys, didn't I throw three men into the furnace? Now, I will tell you, it is fun. Some of the early church fathers said that the reason Nebuchadnezzar jumped up is because the three men were singing in the furnace. That's not in the passage, but it creates a cool visual. And a lot of the paintings from the medieval era shows the three of them singing, actually the four of them singing. Now, I love this. He jumps up so suddenly, you're about to watch a worldview change, okay? These worldviews don't change easily. You're about to watch a worldview change very suddenly as Nebuchadnezzar it says, he, he goes from the statement, oh yeah, what God then will save you from my hand, to oh. Okay? That's the world change. The worldview has just changed for him. Some preachers believe they were singing. I said that, <coughs> well, the soldiers are dead. For them to exist still two heartbeats later would have shocked him. Instead, he sees not three, but four figures walking around. By the way, they're not hurt and they're, check this out, unbound. Now, that's just God showing off, right? I mean, it's just God rubbing, rubbing Nebuchadnezzar's face in this. They're not even bound. So, their bonds burned away, apparently. The ropes holding them, instantly incinerated, turned to ash around them. They're unbound and unhurt, walking around in this. That's, that would be shocking. Of course, he jumps up. you got to know that all, everyone else was packing up. And when everyone was like, everyone bowed but these three, those three are now ash, <coughs> we can start folding up the chairs and, and taking care of all this type of... And Nebuchadnezzar is still staring in the fire going, hey guys, I think there's people walking around in there. That doesn't seem right. Something, something's not right here, something's off here. There are four walking unhurt, unbound, and one is like a son of the gods. Now that will get your attention too. Because you throw three in, now there's four, they're fine. The word here is similar to the word Elohim. <coughs> Elohim, which is the, one of the words for God um, that we have all through Scripture, is a Hebrew word. Um, here we're in, Ar in um, Aramaic in this passage. Um, and so this, this word 
is similar, though, a similar word, a similar concept. It has Elohim as plural and singular understandings. The word that's used here is plural, a son of the gods. Um, some older translations say like the son of God, but that's probably kind of wishful thinking. It's really son of the gods. <coughs> some say this is Jesus. Um, some in the early church thought so. Possible, but certainly not necessary given the language. We have accounts all through the Old Testament of a physical representation, a physical version of God being there, whether it's the fiery furnace, I mean, whether it's the burning bush, those are similar to each other, the burning bush, um, whether it's the burning bush or, or whether it's the one who's giving Abraham the promise or whatever, and, and often these are thought of as the pre-incarnate, which is weird language, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming to earth before he's coming as a baby and engaging with the world, and, and there's good reason to argue through that. This one's not such a good one to try to argue. It's certainly possible, but this one's not as good a one to argue. <coughs> this is probably an angel, a being of power, and its power is evident to Nebuchadnezzar through the flames. That's what really matters here. There's something divine about this fourth character walking around. Um, it seems to be what Nebuchadnezzar intends is to think of it as an angel in chapter 4. Actually, later in this chapter, he's going to reference it as an angel. Um, now, I'm, I'm, as some of you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a Star Wars fanatic, and, and so therefore, I celebrate, the, I celebrate Star Wars Day tomorrow, which is the, day, the, rep, the anniversary of when the original was released. Some of you kind of pseudo-fans, you celebrate May the 4th. Um, I'm kind of teasing you with that. So, but you celebrate May, right? Because it sounds cool. May the 4th be with you. This finally, I saw this year, a really fun, there you go. Someone drew in their Bible, may the 4th be with you on this, on this page in their Bible. So there you go. The four, whoever the 4th was in the furnace, that's the one you want to be with you. I, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. All right, so here we have this divine messenger warrior representative of Yahweh in the furnace apparently keeping them from being burned. And after some time, the fire cools down enough for Nebuchadnezzar to approach. So now I picture Nebuchadnezzar approaching that front part of the furnace and, and gets, you know, it's, got, it's too hot. He probably wouldn't be able to get, and finally it cools down enough. He comes over. I imagine him kind of kneeling down and looking in. <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Okay, notice still their respect and deference. Think about who is truly powerless in this situation. I mean, he can't go in and get them. They are completely safe from his... This is literally answering the question Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had. Who will save you from my hand? Now, Nebuchadnezzar meant that generally, from my wrath, from my power. But here you have a situation where God has literally put these three men in a place where Nebuchadnezzar cannot touch them. In his own kingdom, it's his furnace, and he can't go in the furnace to get them. They're going to have to come out. They are truly in the, all the power right now <coughs> is with them. So, um, the Most High God is on their side. Freedom doesn't always equal autonomy. This is important for us as Texans and Americans and Baptists. And freedom is not to uh, is the freedom not to obey is also the freedom to obey, and they choose come out because Nebuchadnezzar has told them to. They come out, but only three of them do. Our fourth one is now done with whatever his task was. This is, this is awesome. 
<coughs> the satraps, prefects, governors, king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. Check this out. They had no smell of fire upon them. They didn't smell like smoke. Now, I don't know how you know that. I mean, surely everyone smelled like smoke. Anyone within 200 yards of this furnace would have smelled like smoke. And so it makes me even wonder, like, did they actually smell like, like, I don't know, a fresh spring breeze? Like, did they, when they walked around, was it like, who smells good? All the rest of us smell like smoke. Somebody smells awesome. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly how this, how do you know? This is God showing off. This, this is that final little tag at the end that goes, and if you doubt me, they don't even smell smoky. How is that? <coughs> that reminds me of the, uh, the woman, I mean, the, the marriage in Cana, where it's not just wine. Jesus doesn't just turn water to wine. That's a neat trick. But it's the best wine that the guy's ever had, right? It's not just that he feeds 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It's that he starts with five loaves, two fish, feeds t- tens of thousands of people, and has 12 baskets left over from the original five loaves and two fish. That's showing off, right? It's not just the exact amount. It's um, Or I always love that when the Hebrew people walked through the sea, whether it's the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, when they walked to the sea, it says they walked, quote, on dry ground. Now, there's a lot of cool explanations for how the water could pile up here or there. There's none for the ground at the bottom of a sea being dry. Only God could do that. And here you have the same kind of showing off. Nebuchadnezzar answers and says them, says to them, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Listen to what he's about to honor these three men for. Listen to this phrase who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. See what you will about Nebuchadnezzar's temper problems. He knows when he's beat. That is a great lesson, especially for us as men. But for, for Nebuchadnezzar, he knows when he's, out, when he's outclassed. They set aside the king's command and they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree, any people, nation, or language... And by the way, he means that, any. He has power over all of them. Just about speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is, a, this is great. This is a good lesson. No matter how sure you were, make sure when you realize you're wrong that you acknowledge that you're wrong. Nebuchadnezzar was 100% sure that he was right in forcing all these people to bow down to his statue. He is proven disastrously wrong. And so he reverses himself. And by the way, has the power to do so. Later when we run into Darius, um, he won't have that kind of automatic power. But Because um, the laws of Babylon versus Persia. But here you have, you should change it. When you learn something new, it should change us. Whatever our prejudices are, whatever our bigotries are, whatever our judgments are, When we learn something new, that should allow us to break out of those. We worship a God of truth. And this God, when we learn something true that we didn't know was true before, intends for us to change our understanding, even even our understanding of Him. Like so many 
he submits. Rather than double down, like most people do, no, no. <coughs> when I went over to uh, Southside uh, Baptist Church with Mark Price, and there was a gentleman over there who had told Mark for years, I'll believe in God, I'll believe in your God the minute I see an actual miracle. And I want it attested, like I want a medical miracle, I want to see it happen. And so a girl came who had um, damage to her, um, I think it was her urinary tract, and there was some serious damage, and it was, it was like life-threatening to her. And the church gathered and prayed over her, and the gentleman came and watched the church pray over her, and the church prayed over her, and they had scheduled, they had already scheduled surgery. I think I've got all the details of this right. It's been a while, but it was, it was so clear, and then she went back to the doctor the next week, and they ran all the same tests, and there was nothing wrong with her. And, and so Dr. Price called this gentleman in and was like, you want to pray now? What are we going to do? And the guy was like, I'm still not convinced. Thought so. So he saw a miracle happen. He saw a little girl healed. But it turns out that wasn't the problem. You do have to give Nebuchadnezzar some credit for the fact that he learned it, he saw it, and he changed. Evidence demands a verdict. Evidence demands a response. Romans 1.3 says this, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit, <clears throat> and according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you ever can become convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Paul would say, then you need to accept him as Lord. Because that's what the resurrection is evidence of. That Jesus' teachings were right. If Almighty God, who has power over life and death, determines at the end of this man's life to raise him from the dead, then apparently that's a stamp of approval. What this guy said, that's the truth. It's evidence. It demands a response and a verdict. <clears throat> but I love Nebuchadnezzar in all this. He has, the, he has to learn, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to learn this lesson again, at least once more. Welcome to us, right? I mean, he's human, like all the rest of us. He's got to learn this lesson again and again, just like all of us have to do, right? But I love that he acknowledges they were right to disobey me. They worshiped God, not me. They disobeyed me, and they were right in doing so. It doesn't mean, so, so again, we want to help understand the, what's going on here. This, again, doesn't mean, sadly, we don't know if, if by the end of all of this that there's a true conversion for Nebuchadnezzar. It's impossible for us to know. What we have him do in this moment is a couple of things. One, he makes it legal and legally protected to worship Yahweh. That's a big deal. For the Babylonian law by the emperor to say it is now protected to worship this God. By law. It doesn't mean you have to. Certainly Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have that. So, again, let's go back to our plaque. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar, since he doesn't have an idol um, in order to be able to put up in his um, pantheon, so he's going to have probably a plaque. I'm making this up, but this helps us understand this, right? Is that he would have a plaque, and his plaque says, oh yeah, God of the Jews, the Most High God. That's, that's what they call him. It's what Nebuchadnezzar comes to call him, by the way the Most High God, a sky God, a God above gods. So here you have the Most High God. So remember what he learned, what Nebuchadnezzar learned already, is that Yahweh is a revealer of mysteries. 
This is one of the things he knows about Yahweh. Oh, you know what? If you, don't, if you, if you listen, if you want war, worship Marduk. If, if you want, if you want uh, storms and power in the sky, you worship Marduk. If you, if you want fertility, you worship our fertility goddess. If you want, if you want wisdom and reading and, and letters and knowledge, then you need to, resp- you need to worship Nebo. But if, if you want to have mysteries revealed to you, pff, man, let me tell you, this guy's good at that stuff, so you go to him for that. Well, now we have a new thing added on, the rescuer of his servants. So you have Yahweh. Here's two things Nebuchadnezzar knows about Yahweh. One, that he reveals mysteries. Two, wow, of course it's going to just not quite fit. Like it's a millionth of a millimeter off, but that's too much. It's going to hang loose so that I don't just sit up here all day. Okay, I'll fix that in a minute. Um, rescue of his servants. Um, uh, and also, also, I'm now almost 50, and so my vision's like, I can't, uh, I don't have my glasses on me. All right, so finally, Nebuchadnezzar rewards them for being right, even at the expense of obeying him. Another sign of a great leader, by the way, is that he, he actually wants people who say no to him when they're right. That's, let me just tell you, those of you in positions of leadership, that's no fun, right? And yet he knows that's important. So we're, we're left with one question at the end of this section. They faced down Nebuchadnezzar. He built his giant statue, his giant golden statue. They refused to worship it. He goes toe-to-toe with them. He throws them in the fiery furnace. They come out of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar legally protects them. God has protected them, though. They don't really need Nebuchadnezzar's protection, but God uses Nebuchadnezzar for this. This probably plays out in history in some important ways. But there's one obvious question here at the end of chapter 3. What is it? Which, what's, anybody? I thought everybody would be yelling it out. Where's Daniel? Anybody ever wondered that? I mean, where's Daniel? Where is Daniel in Daniel chapter 3? It's the book's named after him. It's his book. Where is he? An important note. Let me tell you this. If Daniel was an invented narrative, if Daniel was a fictional book, as many claim that it was, to prove to the Jewish people that they should fight back against the Greeks in the 100s, then Daniel would certainly have been here in this story. If this is just an invented fictional account, you would never have left Daniel out of this account. Of course Daniel would have been right there with the other three. You would never have done that. This leads such credence to the historical, factual nature of this book that the author of Daniel probably Daniel, did not include himself in this account. If you were inventing it, you would never, you, you following me? You would never leave your main hero out of a hero moment like this. Yet he's not here. So where is he? Well, uh, I wrote this down mostly just for the sake of a few people in the room. Maybe he's the fourth man in the furnace. I'm, I'm truly, I'm just kidding. Like that's a total, I, I, just, I was going to tell some of the guys like, this is why I probably should never go back and get my doctoral thesis. Because I like, I've now become ornery enough that I'm like, this is the kind of thing I'd want to write my thesis, trying to defend that Daniel was the fourth man in the furnace. He, he wasn't, just so you'll know. So that's, that's a, I don't know why I'm just messing with that. Okay, so, <clears throat> okay, number two, and I think this one's got some credence. He wasn't required to be there. It tells us at the end of the chapter before that he was back and he was running Babylon. And so maybe they go out to these plains 
And they're going to do this, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, I need someone to stay back in the palace and run things back there. Nebuchadnezzar, you stay, I mean, uh, Daniel, you stay back there. It could easily be something like that, just that simple, that Daniel wasn't required. It's kind of weird because Nebuchadnezzar says every, all peoples, all nations, all languages in the whole world have to bow. This is a PR moment, so maybe Nebuchadnezzar was like, I mean, I know Daniel's not going to bow, so I don't want to put him in a situation to have to bow. That's, that's possible. More likely, I think, <clears throat> under that same heading, this is, this is actually where I land, is I think he just was gone. I think, and by the way, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, where would you have Daniel on the day of the bowing to the golden idol? Where would you have Daniel? Yeah, gone, right? I need you to go to Tarsus. Oh my gosh, that's the other end of the planet. Perfect. Yep, that's exactly where I want you. I need you to talk to a friend of mine in Tarsus. Why? Why right now? Because right now. Listen, I'm the emperor. Get out of here. Go to Tarsus. Right? I don't, I don't know, but that's where I, if that was me and I didn't want a big error at my PR, my giant PR event, because you got to know Nebuchadnezzar knew, well, it's not like Daniel's going to bow. So I think that's the most likely. But there's a main reason why, because the fourth option is he bowed. That in this situation, Daniel bowed. And I just want to say something about us as humans here for a second. It would certainly be out of character, as Daniel has revealed to us, for him to bow under this consideration. I agree with that. That's why I think probably Nebuchadnezzar had him, you know, go be an ambassador to Zimbabwe or something. But understand, if you try to make the argument, I know Daniel didn't bow because of the character of Daniel, then you're making a mistake. That's not how human beings work. It is shocking that Daniel is someone we have so much press about, and we don't have a huge, massive failing. Almost every other person we have in the Bible. I actually think it's fascinating Daniel chapter 3 exists without Daniel to even leave that seed in the back of our brain that, you know, what may be true here is that Daniel's not in this account because he was down on his face before a golden idol. Now, again, that's not my opinion. When we get there, someday we'll get to ask Daniel where he was in Daniel. You know he's sick of that question. By the way, you got to know, in heaven, Daniel's like, wait, let me guess. You want to know where I was in chapter 3? But is it out of character? Yes. But listen, I actually think my main argument for why I think Daniel didn't bow is because I think if Daniel had bowed, that would have been one of the main points of Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 would be called Daniel Bows. Because, listen, is it your experience with God's holy word that the Bible is afraid of tearing down our heroes? That it avoids that? Like, oh, you guys really like, you're going to really like David, so I'm not going to put anything in here that makes David look bad. Yeah, uh, no. Everybody, pick, the, pick your biblical hero. Even Joseph has some pretty sketchy things that Joseph does. And he's probably close after Daniel as far as the least to be undermined. But person after person after person in the Bible. Why? Well, because they're persons. They're people. They're just like us. If we think it's out of character, yes, I think it is out of character that Daniel would bow. However, if Daniel had bowed, it would be out of character for the Bible to kind of hush that up. Instead, to do the opposite, the Bible would bring it, God's Word would bring it to right to our face, to make us deal yet again. I don't know about you, every time I read the chapter, start the turnover to the chapter, David and Bathsheba, I just want to close it. I don't want to read this. When I read about Joshua making a deal with the Gibeonites, like, 
I'd, you know what, I'd, I'd rather just not read this part. When it turns out that Gideon ends up falling away from following God at the end of his life. You know what, I think I'm going to skip that part. When Jonah ends up cursing, cursing God because of a plant dying. Like, you know what, I think I'll, I think I'll just skip chapter, ch- chapter 3 of Jonah ends really nicely. Chapter 3 ends so good, I think I'll just forget about chapter 4. I, I don't want to read about Peter denying Christ. I don't want to read about the disciples running for the hills, but that's what it says. And so we wrestle with that. So did Daniel bow? My opinion is no. I think he's gone. I think Nebuchadnezzar was a smart enough and shrewd enough leader to send Daniel to some far zip code away from the whole situation. That's probably part of why he was extra mad. That he's like, forgot about the other three guys, right? I should have known they would have gotten to bow. I think there's so many great lessons and so many examples of these three guys and Daniel in this for us to continue to wrestle with. It is un- I think it's unlikely, maybe, that by my death I will face the kind of persecution in our country that is described here, where there are legal and, and, and even life and death ramifications of following God. But I could be wrong about that. I think we could easily see businesses come under threat because we, will, we insist on following. We see it in other places. I think we could see it. I think there's a good possibility our children or our children's children could face that kind of persecution if the Lord tarries. We need to make sure we are raising up a generation and that we are a generation that understands. You face moments like this in our faith. Our faith, we put our faith in Almighty God to save us. He may not in a way that is obvious to the world. He will deliver us one way or another. He may deliver us through death to Himself. He will deliver us. It may not be cool. We may not get to walk around in a furnace, or we may. That's not how we make that decision. What is the price? Count it. And then we sign on the bottom line because we have no idea. He could, following Christ will and should and to some degree is guaranteed to cost us everything. And that's, we don't ever want to missell this idea. So I want to pray. I want to pray for all of us as we continue to face the challenges that we face as a nation, as a church, as a people. I'm so grateful for you guys who are here. I'm so grateful for everybody who's out there watching live online um, it is so good to be in community. Um, it's so good to live in a place where we do have the freedom to, to do our best to love each other and to gather together and to do so wisely and deferentially to our authorities. Um, I thank you, many of you, um, Judge Moran's here and others who are here, um, who, are, who are part of the people making those decisions. You're making them for camps and ministries and businesses and that kind of stuff, and we want to pray especially for you on top of the fact that, of course, today we remember those who have served. So many of you, many of you out there are veterans and, and have lost family and friends to, in combat and stuff like that. Let's remember one another in the midst of all of this. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your goodness. And we're so grateful um, for this account that's, that's like 2,600 years old. And yet it's just as inspirational today and just as real today. Um, just as applicable today. And Lord, there are brothers and sisters around the world right now who are facing this kind of persecution, who are facing threats to life, to health, um, to resources. And God, um, we have it so well here. It's, we're so blessed in this nation, largely because of the men and women who have died to protect these freedoms. And so... God, they have been your agents to impact um, our nation. God, I pray your church, your kingdom, us as your ambassadors, this 
um, as your consulate would continue to be the source of life-giving truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and that that, uh, the good news of your Son would go out into the community from here, back into our homes, that even things like our anger is submitted to you. It is deferred to you, that our rights are deferred to you, that even as patriots who love a nation, that even those things are deferred to you and your kingdom. I thank you that you are a God who reveals mysteries like the gospel especially for us as Gentiles. I thank you that you are a God who saves your servants, who rescues your servants. Rescue us, Lord, now, we ask in your Son's name. Amen.